So Congress redefined marriage. What's the big deal? Well, that is an important question, and we're going to help you answer it. I'm Stuart Shepard, and this is First Liberty Live. Thank you for liking and sharing our videos. You are an important part of this video project, just getting the word out, sharing it with your friends and family who are concerned about things the same way that you are. Thank you for being part of that. We appreciate you. I want you to meet Ryan Anderson. He is president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, You'll find his name either as author or co-author on five books that are out there. One is titled Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom, and another one he co-authored called What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense. You can see why we want to talk to him. Hi, Ryan. Hey, good to see you. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, it's good to have you, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Right before Christmas, Congress rushed through in the lame duck session something they artfully called the Respect for Marriage Act. President Biden quickly signed it into law with a big smile on his face. What does that new law do? Why do we need to be paying attention? Sure. I mean, so on the one hand, it doesn't do anything. Uh, It doesn't provide any new legal benefits uh, to same-sex couples, um, et cetera, et cetera, in light of the Obergefell decision. But it does lock that Obergefell decision in place um, so that it wouldn't just take a Supreme Court admitting it got it wrong seven years ago in the 2015 Supreme Court decision that redefined marriage. Now you would also need Congress to act. But uh, what it does do is it Um, puts now all three branches of the federal government in favor of a new definition of marriage, which raises significant religious liberty concerns, right? So so what it does here is it doesn't immediately give anything new to same-sex couples, but because now you have Congress saying we're on board with a new definition of marriage, and you have the White House, the president, saying I'm on board with a new definition of marriage, it's going to make life more difficult for some of your clients at First Liberty when they run into a religious liberty uh, um, lawsuit, because they're going to say, look, it wasn't just judicial activism that created this problem. This is now a compelling government interest. All three branches of the federal government are now on record with this new understanding of marriage. And why are you uh, dissenting? What, what are churches? What should churches and other faith-based nonprofits be doing right now to shield themselves from this? Is there anything they can do? Well, I mean, yes and no. You you, you can't, uh, there's nothing you can do immediately to shield yourself uh, from the Respect for Marriage Act, um, you know, a, a misnamed law. But there are things you can do and, you know, various public interest law firms, I'm sure First Liberty uh, provides an audit. I know um, Alliance Defending Freedom, the Beckett Fund, a variety of good public interest law firms who you can talk to and they'll say, all right, let's look at your various protocols. Let's look at your mission statement. Let's look at you know, various things you're doing when it comes to staffing decisions, when it comes to school policies, if you're, you're a religious nonprofit who's running a school, when it comes to medical decision making, if you're running a hospital, a clinic, a variety of things that you can do up front um, so that if a, um, a a complaint were to arrive, you know, at your desk, you've already laid the groundwork to make sure that you have all of your ducks in a row and that you've articulated your understanding of human embodiment of human sexuality, you've articulated a kind of uh, um, a, a faith statement, what it is that you believe, what it is that's motivating uh, your faith-based religious nonprofit. And then you have policies that are in consistent in keeping with that. They are consistent with what you say you believe and why you believe in it. Um, th- those are the sorts of things that you can do on the front end, just to make it very clear that, look, we're a Christian ministry. 
we're a Christian school, a Christian hospital, a Christian shelter. We operate according to Christian beliefs about human sexuality, according to Christian beliefs about marriage. Um, so that if, you know, God forbid, one day you are um, sued, you're otherwise um, kind of brought in um, uh, in violation of a non-discrimination ordinance, for example, um, you, you, you've you done the best you could on the front end uh, should that eventuality one day uh, uh, come to, to pass. This weirdly, and, and this is my way of thinking about it, it's not probably legally correct, but it creates kind of a, a zeroth amendment that comes before the First Amendment. Uh, it creates rights that, that from the position of Congress in passing this law, supersede our right to the free exercise of religion. Except that's not in the Constitution. It's just something they passed in law. Right, and which is why, I mean, ultimately it can't actually supersede the Constitution, right? I mean, this is a statute, this is a piece of legislation. No matter what, we will have uh, First Amendment protections. The question, though, is how um, expansive or narrow are those First Amendment protections? And, you know, many of our uh, viewers, our listeners will know that there's, you know, a, a whole debate about um, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's the Bob, uh, sorry, not the Bob Jones decision. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, but it's the Smith decision. Yes. Uh, Employment Division v. Smith as to whether or not the First Amendment creates um, exemptions from otherwise generally applicable and facially neutral laws, or is it only when religion is singled out for particular disfavor that the First Amendment comes into play, right? And so there, there's a huge debate about how narrow or how expansive the First Amendment is. The reason I mentioned Bob Jones is that this is the famous case, uh, I believe it's 1980-1981 Supreme Court case, where a Christian university, uh, Bob Jones University, at the time had a policy against interracial marriage and interracial dating on campus. The IRS revoked its nonprofit tax status. Bob Jones said, but we have the First Amendment. And then when it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, look, it's a compelling government interest to eradicate racial discrimination. Um, the court is on record saying we're in favor of racial equality. Congress with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is on record and the executive branch of government, the White House, the president. All three branches say that this is a, um, a, a an interest of the highest order. And so you don't get a religious liberty exemption from this decision from the IRS. Why do I mention that? The defenders of the so-called Respect for Marriage Act will say, well, look, it, it includes some religious liberty language and it includes um, a language that says this act in and of itself won't cause religious liberty violations. And, and they're correct. So far as it goes, this act in and of itself won't deny anyone a nonprofit tax status. But this act could be cited by a Biden IRS as the reason why it's revoking someone's nonprofit tax status. Um, this this bill, what they coupled together was both same-sex marriage and interracial marriage, right? I mean, the two things that are kind of singled out for special respect in the Respect for Marriage Act are which, interracial Which they were trying to set the argument up in a particular way by doing that, and also to make anyone who opposed the act someone that they could then tag with that. But it was, I mean, it's just so typical of Congress to do something that, that's, that is that disingenuous, if you will, because there's no need and, for and that. That's, and that's then the concern, because then it seems like, all right, well, what you can do is cite this, this act, the previous Supreme Court ruling in Obergefell, various actions from a Biden administration and say, just like how we responded to those who wouldn't um, uh, respect interracial marriage, we did not grant them religious liberty protections. So too, we should not grant religious liberty protections uh, for those who do not accept same-sex marriage. 
And, and, I think there's a huge difference between interracial and same-sex marriage. Because I was going to say, I know you've written about that. Yeah, yes. summarize that for us. I know you've written about it. Explain for us so that we can help explain to our friends and family why those are not the same thing. They don't belong in the same bill together. The idea of interracial marriage, which there's no biblical mandate against, versus same-sex marriage, which there is. Yeah, I mean, so, and, and, it, and it's not only biblical. This is both faith and reason. Uh, from both a philosophical and a theological perspective, your skin color, your racial identity, your ethnic heritage has nothing to do with what marriage is. That the very nature of marriage, uh, at both the philosophical and theological lev level, is that it's a colorblind institution. And the reason why is that a man and a woman can unite as one flesh, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their ethnic or racial heritage or identity. A man and a woman, when they unite as one flesh, have the capacity to create new life and then attach that new life with his or her mother and father. By contrast, no same-sex relationship can do any of those things. No same-sex relationship can unite as one flesh. No same-sex relationship can create new life. No same-sex relationship can unite that new life with both a mother and a father. Right? And so that's why from both a philosophical and a theological uh, perspective, we should have laws that are colorblind with respect to what marriage is. Laws against interracial marriage were unjust because it went against the truth of what marriage is from both a biblical and philosophical perspective. Yeah. By contrast, we can't have laws that are blind to our embodiment as male or female. Um, and, th and that's what's happening with um, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. And you can see how, uh, just as a cultural matter, in the years after Obergefell, once we said that our embodiment is male and female doesn't matter for what marriage is, culturally and then legally said, well, our embodiment is male and female simply doesn't matter. And that's why the transgender phenomenon was, you know, very much the next thing to happen. We moved from the LGB part of the acronym to the T part of the acronym. And, and these things are connected at a deep kind of creational, philosophical, theological level. I appreciate it. This is why I wanted to have you on, because you bring clarity to this in a way that few other people can, and it's very helpful. I, there's Thank a you. lot of talk about rights when this comes up. The other side is always talking about rights, but no one ever seems to talk about religious freedom as a basic human right. Why is religious freedom a basic human right that needs to be protected and defended at the highest level? Sure. I mean, the, the most uh, simple and straightforward answer I can give you there is that all of our rights that are authentic rights are meant to create the space for us to fulfill our prior duties. And the reason that we have religious freedom rights is because we have religious duties. And one of our you know, great American founders articulated this very clearly, um, James Madison and his memorial and remonstrance. He says the reason that we have rights uh, with respect to religious liberty is because we have duties towards the creator, right? So Madison's entire argument for why religious liberty is an authentic, natural right is because of the nature of the creature-creator relationship, a vertical relationship. Here's the creator, we as creatures stand in a vertical relationship. That then creates a horizontal relationship where citizens vis-a-vis -vis each other, and therefore citizens vis-a-vis -vis the state have a relationship, not one of duties, but of rights. Right? And so you and I have a right vis-a-vis -vis each other, vis-a-vis -vis the state, to be able to fulfill our duty to God. And this is where Madison then says, and look, the duties that we owe to the creator take precedence both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the duties that we owe 
to the state. We do have duties to the state, but we should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We should render to the God the things that are God's, right? Those duties to God, they pre-exist the state, and those duties to God are more important than the duties to Uncle Sam. That's why religious liberty is such a fundamental uh, freedom, such a fundamental right. Uh, it's because of that dutiful relationship. There's there's another question, as, as you've dealt with it quite a bit already in our conversation here, but I want to pose it as a question just to get the whole thought in one. And, and it's such a basic question that most of us never thought to ask it growing up, because we just always thought marriage is what marriage is, and it, we never had cause to need to defend why we believe that it is the way it is. You wrote a whole book on this uh, with the title, What is Marriage?, just succinctly for us, to help us be able to explain this to friends and family, when we describe what marriage is, what is it? Yeah, and, and you know, this goes back to your question about, you know, why is it the case that interracial marriages are real marriages, whereas same-sex relationships are non-marital? And that's because marriage is about uniting uh, two people in a comprehensive way, uniting them at all levels of their personhood, of their humanity. And that means it's going to be a, a, a union, not just of hearts and minds. I mean, that's what normal friendships are. We unite you know, our hearts and our minds with our friends, but there's going to be a bodily union, right? What makes marriage different than other types of relationships is that there's a bodily union. And the reason why is that we are embodied beings. And so our bodies are personal, right? They're part of who we are. So when we unite bodily with another person, we unite as one flesh. Right. That's going to be uniting us, not just hearts and minds, but also bodies, uniting us at all levels of our humanity, of our personhood. That one flesh union. Why does the state care about it? Because that one flesh union can create the next generation, something that the state needs, but the state can't produce itself. Right. So the state is not in the baptism business. The state is not in the bar mitzvah business. The state's in the marriage business because marriage is both a secular and a sacred institution. Right. Yeah. Marriage falls under the jurisdiction of both the church and the state because it has both uh, secular and sacred functions, both natural and supernatural functions. And it's about uniting us from the state's perspective as one flesh, bringing together a man and a woman as husband and wife to then be equipped to be mother and father to any children that their union produces. It's based on three uh, uh, kind of um, uh, natural truths, an anthropological truth that men and women are distinct and complementary a biological fact that reproduction requires a man and a woman, and then a social reality, children deserve both a mother and a father. That's why, that's what it is, that's why it matters, um, and it's a problem to redefine it. Very well put. I, something you're, you're doing as you talk about this, and I think it's with purpose, but it's something that I think is an important point is, you're talking about marriage, but you're not saying traditional marriage, natural marriage, man-woman marriage. You're not putting any descriptor in front of it. You're trying to keep the language pure so that the debate can be handled in an appropriate way. As soon as we put an adjective in front of the word marriage, we've already lost part of the debate. That's exactly right. It's, it's also why I don't like it when people say biological sex, as if there's some other type of sex, right? <laughs> sex is the bodily reality. It's, it's not as if there's like uh, biological sex and then some other type of sex. In the same way, there's not traditional marriage and some other type of marriage or biblical marriage. Of other, there is marriage. It's yeah. a reality. It's a natural creational reality. There is uh, our sexual embodiment, right? Gender identity, the redefinition of marriage, these things are something other than uh, those natural realities. And, and so we should be clear both in our thinking, but also in our speaking. Uh, and, and not allow the other side 
to force us to um, use new language to describe natural realities. Yeah, I've had many conversation, conversations with friends, and, and I'm looking for you to help us respond to these statements. I, I've had friends say in so many words, well, I don't see what the big deal is. Just make the cake. How do you respond to that? What are some of the consequences when marriage, and it has been now in our culture, at least civically, been redefined? What are some of the consequences that follow on that make it such a big deal? Sure. I mean, th this would be like the equivalent of someone saying, I don't see what the big deal is. Um, just burn a little incense. Right. And we, we had many Christian martyrs go to their death because they refused to burn a little incense at the altar of a false god. Um, I mean, what's at stake here is precisely the integrity of someone's conscience uh, and their faithfulness in living out their vocation. Um, so I know you, you, you guys at First Liberty, you, you represent the Kleins. Um, these are bakers. They were asked to do a same-sex wedding cake. They said, we can't, right? We can sell you cookies and brownies. We can do happy birthday cake. We can't use our God-given gifts and talents to help celebrate something and to communicate a message about something that we don't believe lines up with God's design for marriage, right? We have a vocation, uh, and our vocation, our discipleship, our uh, 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 our living out of our faith is not just something that we do for one hour Sunday morning inside of a chapel, right? It, it's a 24 hours a day, seven days a week reality. Jesus wants us to be disciples. He wants us to be uh, followers of his. And that means what we do at work is just as important as what we do at home, just as important as what we do with our volunteer time. Um, and that means that if you don't believe uh, that marriage can be redefined by the state if you don't believe a same-sex relationship is marital uh, it's understandable why a baker a florist a photographer a website designer to take you know a case at the supreme court this term wouldn't want to lend their god-given gifts and talents to celebrating something and to communicating something that they believe isn't marital when their client their customers asking them to celebrate it and communicate it as if it were marital um and that's I, the I, basic yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, that's the basic um, uh, 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 argument. And, and I think people can see this one. Just just change the message. Change the event. Right? What if you were um, uh, someone who was very committed to racial equality and someone from the KKK was asking you for a cake to celebrate an event to communicate a mes message of white supremacy? You would understand why you wouldn't want to uh, create that item. And in one of the cases, Jack Phillips, uh, 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 a cake artist, he had been asked to do cakes, anti-American cakes. He had been asked to do one cake celebrating a divorce where a wedding cake would be cut in half and he would deliver just half of it. He's like, look, there are certain messages I can't send. There are certain events I can't celebrate, not based upon the identity of the customer, but based upon my identity as a Christian. Right? For me to be a disciple, there are certain things I can't do, and you're asking me to violate that duty to God in order to provide you with something that you could get anywhere else, right? In the in your case, the Kleins, they're in the state of Oregon. We don't know of another baker in the entire state that has declined to do same-sex wedding cakes. So why force this particular couple to violate their conscience, right? It's and, not as if they have a monopoly on cake uh, design. Yeah, and, and, and one of the key parts of that is the Kleins had already done business with the person who was requesting the cake. 
what they turned down was not the person, but the event. And that's a key part of this. We hear the other side. They always want to say, well, you're refusing service. Well, no, they weren't refusing service. They were turning down a very specific custom cake for a very specific event. And that makes a difference when we're having a conversation about this. No, that's, I mean, that's hugely important because it's one thing, I mean, and this is where the analogy to racism comes up. I mean, where people say, look, this is just like the Southern lunch counters that wouldn't serve black customers, right? And that's not what's happening. We don't know of a single baker, florist, photographer, website designer that says, if you are gay, I won't serve you. What we know of is a very small handful of, you know, custom artists who say, I can't create a custom work of art, whether it's floral arrangements or a photography uh, package or a cake or a website celebrating a specific event, right? And that's a very different, because one objection is to who the person is. Another objection is based upon who I am as the creator, as the artist, as the, the person engaged in this action, and I can't celebrate something. I can't communicate something. So the Supreme Court has spoken on this. Now Congress has chimed in as well. A lot of people may feel like, well, we, we've just lost that one. But we're not done yet. What are ways that people can push back against this? What can we be doing? Sure. I mean, so, so I mean, one answer there is like exactly what we're doing right now. I, I think education um, uh, uh, can illuminate. It, it opens people's minds. It opens their eyes to what's going on. It helps them better be able to articulate the law that's written on the heart. I think education is something we can all be doing. Uh, second, elections do have consequences, right? Who is in the White House? Who is in uh, the Chamber of, Con uh, uh, of Congress? Uh, who's sitting on the Supreme Court? All of those things will have drastic um, impact in terms of what laws get uh, proposed, which laws get passed, which laws get signed into law, what sort of court rulings we have. Um, so, I would say education, I would say um, uh, political engagement. Uh, and then I would also say that uh, prayer is something we can all be doing. Um, uh, both prayer for, I mean, specific, you know, pieces of legislation, but, but more importantly for conversion. I think a lot of people um, don't actually know what it is that Christians believe on these issues because they've never really uh, encountered the gospel in an authentic way. And so I think one area, especially for a Christian ministry is to be realizing that all of these things are penultimate matters, right? The the, the ultimate questions um, uh, about friendship with God are what matters most, and that should ultimately be where all of our prayers uh, end up. Very well put. I want to give you a minute uh, to talk about the, the work of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Where are you? What do you do? Sure. So uh, we are a D.C.-based uh, think tank where we kind of focus on both law and culture, uh, ethics and public policy, as the name uh, suggests. Uh, we have a variety of scholars doing a variety of projects um, on, you know, we have a Catholic studies program and an evangelicals uh, and civic life program. We have an HHS program, a technology program, uh, a project on gender identity, um, a project on education, a project on American uh, identity. All of these things are meant to show how both faith and reason, uh, the Judeo-Christian theological traditions and the natural law philosophical traditions, played a role in our nation's founding and need to continue playing a role today in our nation's public life, uh, in our laws and in our culture and our public policy, uh, that for our kind of civic renewal, uh, we need to be going back to uh, bedrock uh, to, to kind of you know tap into 
the roots of our civilization, which are both Athens and Jerusalem, faith and reason, uh, to illuminate us thinking about the most important questions when it comes to human nature, human identity, and human flourishing. And, and that keeps you busy all day, but you've also been busy at the Anderson House. I want to show people a picture of, of a lamb or two that was just born uh, in the last few days at the Anderson Household. Tell us about that. Sure. So we used to live right on Capitol Hill. Um, and as soon as our, um, our eldest son started to be able to crawl, we were looking to move. And we ended up moving 50 miles uh, outside of D.C. And we're on a small family farm and raising um, chickens, rabbits, ducks, pigs, sheep, goats, and a cow. <laughs> and this is lambing season. And so we, we had um, 10 ewes that were pregnant. And so far, two of our ewes have given birth. And each time it's been twins. So we have four uh, uh, little lambs right now. And, you know, we're waiting eight more uh, ewes to give birth. And it's it's great fun. And it's great for the kids. We now have three um, uh, children, uh, human children, and they love uh, uh, being raised with all of the livestock. It's a, yeah. it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. A lot of life lessons in there. Anything else you'd like to share before I let you go? I so appreciate your time. No, I'm happy to have this conversation and very grateful for the work that you guys do at First Liberty. Um, you know, both the various you know seminars that, you know, where we first met, I was teaching some of the students in some of your seminars, but then also the litigation uh, that you guys do. It's just, it's vitally important work. Uh, and I'm just glad to be able to partner with you on it. Very good. Ryan Anderson, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right. And thank you for uh, following us here on First Liberty Live. We talked a bit about Aaron and Melissa Klein's case. Those are the cake bakers out of Oregon that were basically run out of business by the state, which fined them $135,000 because they said we can't participate in that ceremony. If you'd like to keep up with their case, it is currently uh, pending at the U.S. Supreme Court. We've asked the court to take the case. And we're waiting to hear whether they will. And if you'd like to see how that plays out, it's going to happen here over the next few weeks and months. Uh, just You can follow us at firstliberty.org. Uh, if you subscribe to our First Liberty Insider email newsletter, you'll definitely be right on the cutting edge there as things progress with that. All right, First Liberty is your last line of defense and your greatest hope for victory.